This is Louisiana Considered on WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge. I'm Diane Mack. Just ahead on today's show, we catch up with violist Bruce Owen as the Musaica Chamber Ensemble continues its 18th season. And we'll have the latest on recycling and composting efforts in New Orleans. But first... Back in 2021, Mayor LaToya Cantrell aimed to introduce the Smart Cities Initiative in New Orleans, which would have introduced a citywide Internet service provider while equipping the city's infrastructure with so-called smart devices. But this bill was abandoned in 2022 after allegations of corruption. Now, the New Orleans City Council is responding with some proposed changes to a city law to help avoid similar scandals. Katie Fernelius has been covering this story for Verite News and joins us now for more. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Diane. Katie, let's back up for a minute. Can you describe the nuts and bolts of the City Smart program, why it was abandoned, and how this reflected on Mayor Cantrell? Well, like you said, Diane, the Smart Cities Project was first announced in 2021, and it had two big components, exactly like you say. First, it would create a city-directed internet service provider, and second, the city would put smart devices on city infrastructure, which would collect data. A program like that should inspire a good public debate about how we might supply internet for the city, as well as what we might choose to do with this public data collection. But that wasn't the debate that took center stage. Instead, the debate became about whether the procurement process had been fair. Now, procurement is the word for the process by which the city selects contractors. And for the Smart Cities Project, the city selected a group called Smart Connected NOLA, which was a consortium of businesses that had worked together to prepare their bid. Well, it turns out that two city employees involved in this procurement process had relationships with the consortium, and had actually worked with them on proposals for smart city projects in other parts of the country. It also turned out that the city itself had a relationship with a group called Ignite Cities, which consulted both Smart Connected NOLA and the city. But neither the city nor these two employees had disclosed these facts. And disclosures of these types of relationships, of course, are important to make sure that this bidding process is fair. But that didn't happen here. What did happen is that media scrutiny and investigations brought these affiliations to light, and eventually the city shelved the Smart Cities project, and one city employee resigned as a consequence. And now the city council is introducing proposed changes to help the city steer clear of potential similar problems. What is the law as it currently stands, and what are these proposed changes? Yeah, of course. So the laws passed by city council strengthen the existing code of ethics and directly address some of the problems raised in the smart cities debacle. So, for example, the two city employees who did not disclose the fact that they owned a business together said that they didn't disclose that because their business did not make any money. So now one of these laws says that city employees need to disclose their affiliations with both nonprofit and for-profit entities even those that make zero dollars. Similarly, the city did not disclose disclose its relationship with Ignite Cities because they said that Ignite was providing them pro bono consulting. They also initially failed to provide documentation of this relationship to investigators. Now, the new law says that the city has to, one, comply with all investigations and provide this documentation, but two, and more importantly, upload all contracts, MOUs, and similar documents related to working with any outside entity to their central database within 20 days, even if those contracts are for pro bono work. 
So these laws are not overhauling the city's code of ethics by any means, but they are directly responding to the smart city scandal and making it absolutely clear that all affiliations need to be disclosed in the procurement process and the city must comply with investigations going forward. It's no secret that Mayor Cantrell and the city council have at best a hostile relationship. What do you think these law-changing efforts say about that dynamic? Well, during the city council meeting, Councilmember Moreno said that she received feedback from the city in drafting these laws and took that into account. This was apparent in one amendment, which gave the city 20 days to upload new contracts instead of the originally proposed 10 days. So while there is a history of a contentious relationship between the city council and the mayor's office, it does seem like there may have been some conversation happening behind the scenes. And from what I hear, I think the city council is interested in a more productive relationship with the mayor's office moving forward. So you're saying that Mayor Kandrell has responded to these proposals? Well, the mayor's office has not provided any official comment on this to me, but I did reach out and hear from her office that while they cannot say definitively whether she will sign the new laws, currently she does not plan to veto them. Katie Fernelius is a reporter for Verite News. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much, Diane. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Diane Mack. Many New Orleanians can tell you recycling isn't always in this city. Not only is it often disrupted and delayed after natural disasters, but there is currently no widespread glass recycling pickup. Now the Environmental Protection Agency, along with the nonprofit, the Recycling Partnership, are awarding New Orleans two substantial grants to expand curbside recycling and increase participation. Tristan Baurick has been covering the story for The Advocate, and he joins us now for more. Tristan, thanks for being here. Sure, no problem. Can you start by telling us about the current state of recycling in New Orleans? How much waste is recycled here, and why do we lag behind other cities? Yeah, not not very much is actually recycled. So although we do have recycled bins and a lot of people participate, out of all the waste that the city creates, um, only about 2% of it is actually recycled. And that's way below the national average. The national average for most cities is about 30%, so we're way behind. Well, let's break down these grants. Start by telling us about what the EPA is offering. Yeah, they, so the EPA is offering $4 million and the Recycling Partnership is $1.4 million, so a bit over $5 million. And, you know, they kind of have overlapping purposes, but... Um, the main thing is that it's going to fund 73,000 more recycle bins in the city, which is going to be a, a really big help. And then it'll replace about 10,000 bins that are kind of, you know, need to be replaced, busted up bins, that sort of thing. And another thing it'll do is it'll help the city uh, do its first ever master plan for recycling. And the idea behind that is that it's, you know, going to look at best practices with other cities, um, kind of figure out how the city can recycle um, recycle things from, from larger properties, so like apartments, commercial buildings, which really don't get any recycling right now, 
And then a lot of education, you know, just getting New Orleanians to understand how the program works, how they can, you know, divide up their waste in a way that, that makes sense. And um, I think a, a really big thing that the master plan would explore is maybe um, expanding recycling where we would have compost and yard waste pickup in the city for the first time. And I know some additional funding is coming from the nonprofit the Recycling Partnership. Tell us what you know about that organization and what they hope to accomplish here. Well, I don't know too much about them. They're a national nonprofit based in D.C., and, and, you know, their focus is just getting more municipalities to recycle, to improve uh, the the recycling programs that they have, and uh, kind of modernize the system in a way. We've been talking a lot about recycling, but what about composting? What do we know about composting rates in New Orleans, and is there any room in the grants to assist those efforts? Yeah, I mean, that's that. like I say, that's a big part of the master plan. And, you know, right now uh, you can't uh, put your yard waste or your compost in, in a bin and have it be picked up. Um, but out of all the waste that we produce, about 40% is food waste. So that's a huge amount uh, that we're just sending to the landfill. And, uh, you know, if we could compost that, it would make a real impact. Some cities uh, like Seattle, they compost uh, quite a bit and they reuse it in city parks and they offer it to community gardens. So, it, you know, it has a second purpose. We are speaking with Tristan Baurick reporter for the Times-Picayune, The Advocate, about new grant funding to improve recycling efforts in New Orleans. I know one metric that often comes up here is diversion rate. Can you tell us what that means and where New Orleans stands when it comes to diverting? Yeah, the diversion rate is, is kind of, you know, everything that includes recycling, so that's glass, plastic, paper, aluminum cans, but the diversion rate is also can include, um, you know, composting, yard waste. It's basically everything that doesn't go to the landfill. And so because we don't uh, recycle glass, we don't have curbside recycling for glass, and we don't do yard waste and compost, um, you know, our rate is, is very low for what we actually can recycle. But then we have just a very low uh, participation participation rate for residents. So a lot of, only half of residents in the city actually have uh, recycle bins. And then of the people that do recycle, a lot of people are putting in trash and food waste and things like that. That contaminates the loads and then those loads are just sent to the landfill. According to Mayor Cantrell, the EPA will help New Orleans divert at least a quarter of its waste by 2030. How ambitious is that goal? How might that be done? It, it is really ambitious because we are starting at 2%, and to get up to that level, you know, that's, that's on par with, you know, cities like Houston or Gainesville, which have 32%, 40%. Um, but they've had programs that have been pretty robust for, for years or decades. So to get to that level, um, it's going to be a lot of work for the city. In your reporting, you looked at the effectiveness of these widespread recycling programs in other cities. What have you seen? Well, uh, you know, they they have been developing these programs 
over years and, and improving them uh, sort of incrementally. Um, and they have a lot, I mean, programs that do really well have a lot of buy-in from residents and, and they have, you know, developed pretty uh, good education uh, for the public. So the public knows um, how these systems work and they can be kind of complicated sometimes. I mean, when you look at uh, the bottom of a plastic container, most of them say recyclable, but you know, the fact is a lot of them can't actually be recycled at recycling facilities. So, you know, just getting people accustomed to it, making it a part of their routine, that takes time, it takes education, and, you know, that's something that these other cities have been working on for years. And you also spoke with the city sanitation director, Matt Torrey. What has he said about this project, and what does he hope to see? Well, you know, I get the sense that that he is really behind this. Uh, It's something that he's been wanting to do for a long time. Um, I think he's been uh, pushing for this master plan for a long time. You know, it is something that the city's never done before. A lot of other cities have. And uh, I get the impression, you know, he's pretty enthusiastic about it and and wants to see it uh, really expand and, and to kind of bring New Orleans up to par with a lot of other cities. And before we go, why is this so important? What might happen to the city if we don't improve our recycling and composting rates? Well, it just means that, you know, a lot of what we produce is wasted. You know, it's it's just going and filling landfills. Um, so many of these products that, that we throw in the trash can be reused, paper, aluminum, uh, glass, and, you know, especially the, the food waste a lot of room for improvement for New Orleans. And, uh, yeah, it's something that, that can really make a difference, you know, because a lot of people would participate in it, and uh, it, it can do a lot of good things. Tristan Baurig is a reporter for the Times-Picayune, The Advocate. Thanks for being here. Sure, no problem. Thanks a lot. WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge. You're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Diane Mack. The Musaica Chamber Ensemble continues its 18th season called Heart and Soul with two upcoming performances in Metro New Orleans. The group is known for its adventurous programming and its president, violist Bruce Owen, joins us now with details. Bruce, welcome to Louisiana Considered. Oh, thanks so much for having me on, Diane. This is your second of three planned programs this season. First, tell us about the makeup of the ensemble. Who are the musicians and what is your focus? Our musicians are almost all members of the Louisiana Philharmonic. We have string players and also some woodwind players. We have a harpist and a pianist and Our goal is to play as much great chamber music as possible, especially and mostly music that just doesn't get performed a lot for some reason. You are calling this performance Fantasia Romantica. What is meant by that, and what will the journey be for audiences? We are doing works by two composers who are each from a country that speaks a romance language, so one is Italy, which is the country of Nino Rota, uh, whose nonet we will be playing. And also we are playing the first piano quartet by George Inescu, who is a composer from Romania. 
And how did you go about choosing these particular works, Bruce? I was doing some research and just listening to a lot of different music. And I know that Nina Rota is mostly known for writing music for movies. He's especially known for writing the film scores for the Godfather movies and for a lot of Fellini films. And I discovered this nonet that he had written for Strings and Winds. And I thought, this is a really great piece. This is right up our alley if it's something to play. So after listening to it and suggesting it to my colleagues, everybody said, yeah, let's do this piece. And then the uh, piano quartet uh, was actually something our pianist really wanted to do something by George Inescu. He is known primarily for his orchestra works in which he used a lot of Romanian folk tunes. And uh, a lot of people may have heard his Romanian rhapsodies that he wrote for orchestra, but he wrote a lot of chamber music. And this piece is actually one of his very early pieces. So anyway, I listened to it and thought, I really want to play this piece too. So this is the other piece on the program. Yeah, two great works. Can you tell us a little bit more, you know, about the composers and and the actual work itself? Well, Nina Rota, he lived from 1911 to 1979. He was actually not just a composer, but he was also a pianist and a conductor. During his career, he was extraordinarily prolific. He wrote more than 150 scores for Italian and international productions all the way up to his death in 1979, which meant he was writing movie scores for three movies a year on average. And this is something both of these conductors have in common. Uh, Nino Rota was actually encouraged by Toscanini, who was one of the premier conductors of the New York Philharmonic, to move to the United States. And he actually lived in this country from 1930 to 1932, He had a scholarship at the Curtis Institute in Philadelphia, and he studied with Fritz Reiner, who was later a music director of the Chicago Symphony. So Nina Rota did a lot of conducting as well. And this was kind of interesting. I said he worked for uh, Federico Fellini and wrote music for a lot of his films. And this says something about Rota's personality. Fellini said this about Nina Rota, that as soon as he arrived on the set, He said, stress disappeared, everything turned into a festive atmosphere. The movie entered a joyful, serene, fantastic period, a new life. (laughs) And I would say that's a way of describing a lot of his works and certainly this Nonet. He actually worked on this piece for a long time. He started it in 1959. He worked on it until 1974 and then he did some revisions, so it wasn't actually completed until 1977, a couple of years before he died. It's got five movements, and one of the movements has variations for many of the instruments in the group. It captures a lot of the same whimsical fantasy that he included in a lot of his other pieces.
the other piece that we're playing in this program by George Inescu, who lived from 1881 to 1955, is his first piano quartet, which is piano, violin, viola, and cello. He was actually a child prodigy, and he was the youngest student ever admitted to the Vienna Conservatory. The thing he had in common with Rota is that he also came to the United States and made his debut as a conductor in a concert given by the Philadelphia Orchestra at Carnegie Hall. But then later, he was actually considered to be a replacement for Arturo Toscanini. For the New York Philharmonic. Oh. And he actually ended up conducting the New York Philharmonic for two years between 1937 and this first piano quartet fairly early in his life was 1909, unlike Nina Rota, who wrote his nonat very late in his life. Inescu wrote this piece in 1909, and it only got performed twice in his lifetime, once in 1910 and again in 1933. Both times Inescu was actually playing the piano part in this case, and then it wasn't actually published in his lifetime. It was published only in 1965, 10 years after he died. This piece is a really emotional and moving and very melodic, and I think people are really gonna love it. When and where will this concert be performed? We're performing this concert twice. We're doing it on Monday, January 29th, 7.30 p.m. at St. Martin's Episcopal Church in Mattery, and then our second performance will be on Tuesday, January 30th, 7.30 p.m. at the St. Charles Avenue Presbyterian Church in New Orleans. Musical president and violist Bruce Owen, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thanks so much, Diane. All Musica Chamber Ensemble performances are free of charge. Donations are suggested. More info is online at musica.org. That's M-U-S-A-I-C-A dot org. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Diane Mack. Thanks to our guest, reporter for Veritain News, Katie Fornelius. Reporter for the Times-Picayune, The Advocate, 
Tristan Balric, and Musaica president and violist Bruce Owen. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber, and our assistant producer is Aubrey Procell. Our engineer is Garrett Pittman. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcast. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from Louisiana Farm Bureau Federation.